Every day of our lives is spent in the built environment. We live in homes and apartments, drive on roads, get gas from pipelines, go to work in buildings, make purchases in stores and restaurants. We rely on factories, plants, doctor's offices, and hospitals for our basic human needs. And while our world continues to shift and grow and change, the development and delivery of the built environment has fallen dramatically behind. Welcome to The Built Revolution. We're here to engage the leaders, visionaries, and innovators who are revolutionizing the built environment. This podcast is brought to you by Continuum Advisory Group and the Construction Industry Institute. This is Gretchen Gagel with Continuum Advisory Group. I want to give you a heads up that there's quite a bit of background noise on the following podcast, but it's definitely worth a listen. Chris Worley is one of the leading experts in the globe on management theory, agility, and change. And he's very difficult to catch up with. He's been teaching in France for the last four years. I was able to connect with Chris at the Academy of Management Conference, but unfortunately, there's 11,000 people there. So it was very difficult to find a quiet spot. Anyway, I know you'll enjoy the podcast and the outstanding advice that Chris has to offer. Thanks. This is Gretchen Gable with Continuum Advisory Group. I'm here today at the Academy of Management with Chris Worley, noted author, consultant, scholar on many topics um, connected to organizations and change and agility. And uh, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule here at the Academy of Management Conference to talk to us today. It's always good to see you, Gretchen. Uh, I know we had a great time at last year's conference and uh, sort of the, the relationships just keeps getting better and better every year. Yeah. It's good to see you. It's fun. 11,000 people. We've tried to carve out a little bit of a quiet corner here to uh, record a podcast, but it's wonderful to see 11,000 scholars here thinking about management topics related to how to improve organizational performance, et cetera. So tell me, I want to go back a little bit to your first book. I believe it was your first book, Built to Change. What what was the impetus for that book? What really um, was the reason and got you interested in this whole topic of change? I would, uh, Built to Change wasn't the first one. I would say it's the first one in kind of a series uh, most recently. If there was a first one, and I'll mention it only because I think it, it did kind of kick off the ideas, um, I had just just finished my doctorate and, and in, in sort of uh, strategic management. And I was just, I'd, I'd, you know, previously to that, I'd graduated with my, my master's in organization development. And I just was always curious about how do I squeeze and, and push uh, organization development and strategic management together. So that that was really the first one where I, we, we, we looked at a topic we called integrated strategic change. Um, and you know, after that, I got kind of sidetracked doing OD per se and and some other things. But when I came back to the University of Southern California and, and started working with Ed Lawler and his group, it turned out that Ed and I uh, were sort of working on the same thing, but in parallel universes. And a good friend of ours, Tom Cummings, um, said to the two of us, you know, you guys are working on the same thing. You should talk to each other. And it was that connection through Tom that uh, got us started. And Ed was, Ed was worried about 
uh, he'd been studying sort of uh, reward systems and performance management systems, and he wanted to come back to the organization change uh, topic. I had left the, the strategic integrated strategic change idea and had wanted to come back to it and, and start bringing in things that I'd been learning in terms of organization design. So for us, built to change was was what I would I would call it kind of a vision statement. Um, we wanted to find out whether the idea of an organization that could change routinely was that a and I'll use the word theoretically, was that a theoretical possibility? Was it was it something that we could sort of conceptualize and think about? Was it possible to think about an organization that that where change was normal as opposed to stability being normal? And that was sort of the genesis of that particular book. And what did you learn? And and what were the key findings from that book? If you were going to give us a cliff notes, what did you learn about being able to be, you know, where change is more the norm than stability? Uh, a couple of things I, I would list in, the, in terms of the learnings. One was how pervasive stability was as an organizing framework and the notions uh, of uh, continuous improvement, Six Sigma, bureaucracy, um, everybody, reliability. Customers want reliability in, in, in organizations that are providing them with services. They don't want the service to be good sometimes. And, and, and lousy sometimes, other times. So I think one of the things we did learn was how pervasive the notion of stability was. The second thing we noticed was that, uh, the second learning was, in fact, a lot of organizations had been adopting and, and experimenting with a variety of, um, of ideas that took each part of an organization's uh, design or structure and started had experimented in flexible ways of doing things. So they started thinking about more flexible ways of putting together structures and, and looking at lateral coordination and collaboration in different ways. They started looking at work designs that were informed by technology and um, looking at different ways of uh, physical office spaces that, that encourage people to cooperate. Um, Started looking at the strategy from dynamic perspectives, uh, you know, uh, dynamic capabilities uh, and, and the ability to shift resources around. So what we noticed was that a lot of organizations were were playing around with different pieces of something that you might call agility, but very few organizations had sort of put them all together into one package. And so we came out of the book saying, okay, what we've learned from these organizations that are kind of on the fringe is that there are, there are people experimenting with these ideas around change, but that nobody has really sort of put it all together into a package. And we tried to do that a little bit in the Built to Change book, but it was really sort of the, the foundation of, of the next set of research that we would do. Um, in, in trying to find out, okay, are there actually organizations that have, have put these together in some kind of a package? So if I'm a leader in the engineering and construction space, what are one or two key things that I would learn reading Build to Change? I mean, what, what would you say to a leader about building that change-ready organization that you learned during that Build to Change process? Um, I would say one, one of the most important things from the leadership side is that culture is not the right concept to play with. Culture by itself is a relatively internal 
uh, conversation about who we are and what we believe and how we how we treat each other. And and what we learned in the Built to Change book was that's a very internal conversation that that most people see as this relatively you know unchangeable blob, if you will. What we learned is that there are organizations that are saying, okay, we have an internal an internal conversation about our culture. At the same time, there's this there's this conversation that we're having with our customers and with our external stakeholders. Uh, so uh, customers, suppliers, uh, regulators, the financial markets. Uh, we're having conversations with them about who we are and what we believe. And the Agile organizations have started connecting those two conversations. Are the things that you tell your customers and the things that your customers think about you, are those the same things that you tell yourselves internally? Right. And so I would, I would tell leaders to start asking questions about whether or not those two conversations are about the same thing or different things. And, and are you sending different messages to different parts of your stakeholders that are preventing you from actually being more adaptable and responsive to customer needs? It's almost like living your authentic life as an organization. That your, your, your being is yeah. matching the external perceptions and the conversations that you have. That's fascinating. One of the things that when I, on that point, Gretchen, I think what's really interesting is is I like to I like to take these organization concepts and apply them to you as an, as a leader as an individual. Are you having an internal conversation with yourself about who you are, and are you projecting that same thing to your customers and your friends and your family, or are you living two different lives? Right. And it's a lot of energy to try and maintain two different lives. Yes. It's a lot easier when uh, when your truth internally and your truth externally are the same thing. Wow, that's a great concept. So how did Built to Change then drive the research that led to your book, The Agility Factor? So the, we, we always saw, we always saw uh, Built to Change as kind of the, uh, you know, is it possible? Is it possible to think about an organization that's capable of changing uh, in a routine basis and that that would be the way of, of succeeding in today's world? Um, we did. We thought after that book that we would go out into the marketplace and begin to test those ideas through interviews and surveys and case studies with organizations. We did take this little uh, detour on the way to that idea uh, when we began to realize that these organizations that were um, experimenting with these uh, built to change and agile ideas also turned out to be organizations that were routinely um, recognized by people as sustainable organizations. They weren't effective just financially, they were also very good corporate citizens. They were very good on sustainability and uh, they were, you know, uh, cited by by different uh, by different uh, associations as being good places to work, uh, excellent places to um, that were taking care of their environment, taking care of their communities, and so we, we kind of took a detour 
uh, under the notion that we left a little money on the table and that agility, the idea of agility and being built to change would also be an effective strategy for not only financial performance, but other aspects of a triple bottom line in terms of social and, and ecological environmental issues. So we did a little tour there, a little detour. Even as we were writing that, though, we began to, to uh, reach out to uh, members of our uh, sponsor network at the Center for Effective Organizations and say, okay, we're, we want to play with this idea of agility. Um, the idea of building more change capability inside of an organization was starting to gain some momentum. Um, and so we went out to organizations and said, uh, can we come in uh, and uh, do some surveys and interviews and observations and develop some case studies to find uh, organizations that, that might have these characteristics. So we ended up with two databases. One database was this sort of set of interviews and case studies and surveys. But we also wanted to connect that capability to change with financial performance. And so we created a second database that, was, that looked at large public organizations and started, started exploring whether or not there were organizations in, in, an, in any particular industry that had financial performance that was consistently above average. Our logic was that if an organization could change and was able to change routinely, in response to uh, changes in the marketplace or regulation or demands from customers, that they should be able to show financial performance that's consistently above average. And so that's when we went into this financial database and really started digging into profitability of firms. We also looked at um, uh, you know, market capitalization and cumulative returns on shareholder wealth. But we couldn't find anybody who was consistently above average on that one. So we went back to the profitability and, in fact, started finding these organizations that were um, really consistently high performers and did our best to find those organizations and work with them. But, and as a good researcher, you understand this, we also started to look, we also wanted to talk to organizations that were not so fragile. And I think that's one of the things that kind of differentiates our research. Um, we didn't go out and, and do interviews of, of you know, the four most agile companies and look at their characteristics and tell you to, to emulate these companies because then you can't say companies that don't have those characteristics are not agile. So I think we did a good job on that in, in finding, for the, in, in terms of the book, I think we ended up with uh, 50 organizations that we could match to the database on the financial side and say, the more, the more you showed up in terms of your case that is an agile organization, the more likely you were to have this high level of performance. Right. And in the book, The Agility Factor, you describe four agile routines, which um, I appreciate your model because it's it's complex, but it's yet simple enough that I can remember it, to remember the four agile routines, agile strategizing, how you broadly engage people in the development of the strategy and then broadly communicate it and so that people's daily activities are aligned with that strategy. The agile um, perceiving, how you're perceiving what's going on in that external environment, but not just how you're perceiving it, how you're distilling it down to a decision-making process. Talk yeah. about that for a minute, because that's where I see the missing link sometimes. 
sometimes people are gathering lots of data yeah. from the outside, but they're not turning that into effective decision making. One of the things that I think about the perceiving routine that was surprising to us was the extent to which being good in terms of having an external focus and being in touch with your external environment, uh, no matter what the stakeholder, was a structural issue, right? And to what extent do you define people's roles and responsibilities in terms of having a role and responsibility for bringing in information from the outside in or from the bottom up? And I think a lot of senior management teams live in a little bit of a bubble. And and so we're making decisions on inaccurate or incomplete sets of information. So the, the notion of perceiving says you as an organization need to structure yourselves in such a way that you, you bring information from the outside in and from the bottom up so that the senior team, the primary decision makers in a business or an enterprise, are using information that is grounded in the experience of people on the, in the bottom of the organization, if I can use that term, and the people from the outside. And I think what happens is you end up with this much richer um, discussion process and a much uh, higher quality, much uh, you know, uh, level of decisions is a much higher quality when you do that. Yeah, easy to say, more challenging to do. And um, I want to talk about the agile testing routine here for a minute because in my research study of 126 U.S. business units, that was the lowest scoring routine consistently, is the ability to test new products, new systems, new lots of different new things. Why is that so difficult for organizations? There's two parts to this. It's been fairly consistent across all of the organizations that we've looked at in the original data set for the agility factor, as well as the, um, uh, the data we collected in the European study. Testing is the lowest routine. Uh, and I think uh, there's two reasons for that. Part of it is testing, testing involves experimenting. And in most cultures and organizations today, uh, testing and failing is a bad thing. And people are not encouraged to experiment unless they think it's going to be successful, which actually discourages, it discourages experiment. The second part of testing, uh, the testing routine, is what we call test and learn. And so one of the weaknesses of most organizations when it comes to the testing routine is the extent to which uh, people will try something out. And even if it, if it succeeds or fails, they don't spend the time to learn from that experiment, whether it succeeds or fails, and maybe especially when it fails. So the organizations that tend to score higher on testing not only encourage innovation, they're able to learn from, actively learn. There's an active routine there that, that reviews what happens when you fail, reviews what happens when you succeed, um, does after-action reviews, uh, and just spends time reflecting on you know what's working and not working. And that tends to be one of the biggest reasons that, that testing routine is so low. Right. I just did a podcast with Eric Lamb with DPR Construction, and they talked about that as a value in their organization of lifting up failures and saying, what did we learn from this? You don't sweep those under the rug. There's, yeah. 
there's no point from that. You don't yeah. really, um, you don't really learn from that. And yeah. then, and then you have the agile implementing the four through team, which is really building new skills and new capabilities. And so you've tested something, and you know, I, I use like Kaiser Permanente as my healthcare that they test doctors chatting with patients but now we have to broadly you know we have to implement the technology and train people and build these new capabilities um what are some of the key key things in that routine that you learn look at especially today uh we're sitting here in 2018 and and we're faced with with digitalization of almost every every process and, and decision process and uh, work process and and the notion of scaling things up has turned out to be a, a really critical capability. So you test something, you learn from it, and I, and I totally agree with you. They have to sort of make it transparent and make 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 sure that everybody is aware that that, that uh, trying in a right way and failing in the right way is a good thing, and, and nobody gets punished for doing that kind of thing. But once you find something that seems to have uh, so stood the test of time and testing, uh, you've got to scale that up. And organizations need to have the capability to uh, to move things from small scale to large scale, from one part of the organization to another part of the organization. I think there's a this sort of just a diffusion process and a growth process that has to be really good. The the thing that's happening today, and the thing that we learned, I think, most about the implementing routines, was agile organizations are pretty good at managing multiple changes at the same time. And so if you've got a change capability, if you have a shared leadership philosophy, if you're developing your people, those, those and, and you're rewarding them, right, in a flexible way uh, for, for succeeding, of course, but also for experimenting and trying things out in the right way. I think what you end up with is, is this capability that is able to handle, I'll speak in terms of capacity, instead of capability, you end up with an organization that has the capacity to handle more change. And that's what I think we're seeing in the Agile organizations. They have a capacity for change that traditional organizations don't. Um, traditional organizations tend to use very linear change management sort of processes that can only handle one change at a time. The Agile organizations see change as a muscle uh, and the more you use it, the better you get at it, the stronger you get at it, and and now we can handle multiple changes at the same time instead of being uh, sort of boot, sort of strapped down by doing only one change at a time. I think that's the really the, the interesting nut about the implementation routine. I love that statement. Change is a muscle. That's a. Uh... That's great. I'm going to steal that from steal you that and, and use that in the future. <laughs> so once again, I'm a leader. I'm reading the Agility Factor. I'm thinking about these four routines. What are a couple of tips that you give, especially to, well, to, to all types of leaders throughout the organization on things that they can do to help promote a culture of agility? So one of the things that people often ask me is, you know, which of the routines is more important? Is strategizing the most important or implementing or testing? And, and I have to, I have to kind of step back for a second and try and remind them that it, what we are trying to do here is design an agile, changeable organization. It's a design. And because it's a design, that means you've got multiple systems and structures and processes. So if it, or people were trying to build an agile organization, I really have to encourage them to do a good, solid diagnosis first. 
understand where you are strong and weak. Most organizations actually have one or two of those routines where they're doing pretty well. And if you think about making a transformation to agility, you want to build a more change-able culture. You certainly don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You want to understand where where am I strong? Do I have a do I in fact I have a strong uh, perhaps I have a strong testing routine, and in trying to be more strategic or, or better on my change capability, um, I end up sort of weakening that very important piece of agility. So I often have to work with leaders to have a little bit of discipline to, to sort of say, okay, where am I now? What am I good at today? And, and do a good, solid, systematic diagnosis about uh, about my existing routines. Then I can answer your question and say, okay, where are you strong and where are you weak? Let's, let's figure out a change process that takes advantage of your strengths and then builds on to those strengths by, by looking at a, another routine and, and trying to figure that out. So that's the single biggest thing I have to do with executives is to say, you know, step back. This is a whole system, and and, it, and I'll help you find the right lever to pull, but sometimes you got to take a minute to figure out which, which the right one is. Right. I use the analogy of going to the doctor, right? You get a full exam. And you have to you have to trust the the process of being transparent and really understanding, um, and it's a communication process. You know, yeah. if you don't tell the doctor that your stomach's hurting, then the doctor doesn't know where to look. But you may walk in and say, "I think I have an ulcer," and it's something completely it's com- something completely different. That's one thing that happens with our clients. They'll come say, "I have a problem with this," and you say, "No, actually, that's not what your problem is. Exactly. This is what your problem is." Uh, it's, a, it's a great way to put it. We have a, a sort of a saying that uh, the problem is rarely the problem. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is usually with the problem. Right. right? So the problem is usually a symptom. Right. And, Going through a very systematic diagnosis allows you to figure out, and to use the to use the continuous improvement parlance, figure out what the root cause is, and, and often the what what presents itself as the problem is really a symptom. Yep, absolutely. And then the other the way I take that analogy a step further is it's easy for the doctor to tell you you need to lose ten pounds. The difficulty is in changing behaviors, and and that change capacity. Can I change my eating habits, my drinking habits, my exercise habits, my sleeping habits, whatever that is, simultaneously, what does my change muscle look like? And how do I have the discipline as an organization um, to do that? It's really fascinating. On that point, I think uh, I would raise something that's really kind of interesting about the transformation to agility. Let's assume that you have a more or less traditional organization and you want to become more agile. There is this sort of... um, leadership paradox that has to happen. In other words, in order to become agile, you usually have to have someone at the top of the organization um, invest the time, energy, and resources into saying we are going to become more agile. In other words, the the person at at a relatively senior position has to use their power to initiate an agile transformation. The paradox becomes that as soon as that leader then uses his or her power to start the transformation, as the transformation unfolds, they actually have to give away their power to the middle of the organization who is going to do most of the controlling in the Agile organization, because I want my senior leadership team to be much more focused on the future 
in thinking about where the business is going and that and that very flexible strategizing routine. So it's, it's this odd paradox. The, the top has to start it, but as soon as it gets going, they have to give power away, which is often uncomfortable. And uh, you know, for a lot of leaders who have learned to get into senior positions by using their power, that's a little bit of a paradox. It is. So where do you see this research going over the next decade? What are the next questions that you're going to be seeking to answer? How does this learning about this topic of agility continue to unfold? The, I think the, I'll, I'll say what I think is the strengths of the research and what's the weakness of the research. The strengths of the research is I think we've looked at the organization as a whole enterprise and a whole system and, we, and we've been able to show and demonstrate that, 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 that being agile pays off in terms of sustained performance. The weakness of the research is is that we stayed at the enterprise system level, um, and and a lot of organizations do want to sort of know. Okay, I have diagnosed my organization, and I'm weak in testing. So what do I do? And so I think the next the next set of steps here have to do with looking at particular particular change processes that are going to allow organizations to get strong where they're weak in a particular routine. So if I'm, and I, I think we have some hypotheses about that. If you're weak in strategizing, I think it comes back to the question you asked earlier about how do I change my culture? I think it becomes a, a, a leadership imperative to, to start thinking about your identity as an organization, whether the internal cultural conversation and external image, reputation, and brand conversation are the same thing. If you're in, if you're in the perceiving, if that's where your weakness is, most organizations are very uncomfortable uh, looking out five, ten years. They, they have pressures today. There's urgent problems to solve today, and you're asking me to, to think about what might happen in the future. And a lot of people think about agility as being equated with speed. I think that's a mistake. I think agile organizations actually are fast because they're prepared. And it's that future-looking notion that actually makes them prepared. So I think each of the routines has a, has a particular, um, has one or two particular issues. And what we'd like to do is, is see if we can um, both discover with organizations in partnership as we do uh, you know, the kind of research that you and I do, which is getting with organizations and working with them in partnerships. I think we have to sort of help them co-create and construct these solutions. Um, and along the way, we're probably going to invent and innovate uh, some pretty clever ways to get organizations moving forward. So I think it's much more about uh, helping organizations think about that transformation to agility and how do you actually operate uh, an agile organization. Yeah, and your point about looking out in the future, I did a podcast with Rex Miller, who's a noted futurist mm. in our industry. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, these waves, the first horizon, second horizon, yeah. third horizon. Yeah. We're, we're not looking out far enough in our horizons. We're, and, you, you, yeah. you know, those weak signals that you're just you're just monitoring them, right? It yeah. could become something. It could not become something. Yeah. But we're prepared to deal with it if it does become something. The notion of, of just like you say, looking at, at the horizon three and saying, what could happen? And I think... I, you know, a lot of organizations, especially large organizations, have strategic uh, planning or strategic development offices and things like that, who might actually be doing some scenario planning. 
But I always ask them, okay, when was the last time the senior management team discussed those scenarios right. and said, if that did happen, what would we do? Right. Because in today's world, these things are happening faster than you think they will come, and you're caught by surprise. There was a, there's a guy from Institute for the Future. I don't think it's Bob Johansson. It might be one of his colleagues. But he said, I'd rather be surprised by a simulation than caught off guard by reality. There you go. That's a great. And I thought that was a really, really clever saying. Yeah, very clever. So in wrapping up, what are a couple of tips that you would have for our listeners when they're thinking about how to be more agile? Because we hear a lot of conversation in the construction industry about disruption and the need to change and the need to do business in a different way. So to our listeners, you want to learn more about agility. You want to think more about agility. What should I be doing? How do I prepare myself? So I guess I'll answer that in, in two ways. One is, is, is more of a, again, more of a strategic macro kind of idea. I do think that the ideas around organization design are becoming more and more current and more and more relevant. So I would encourage people to, uh, to think about Think about thinking in systems and how does structure and goal setting and resource allocation and your reward and incentive systems, are those all in alignment? And are all those things sending the same signals to your people about the importance of change, not stability? And so as you look at your organization, as you kind of take that diagnostic look, um, you know, do you, are you, have, you, have you created an organization that, has, that is sending those signals? Uh, another one of our uh, org design sort of friends, uh, Dave Hanna, has this saying about uh, all organizations are perfectly designed to get the results they get. And if you think about it, it's a, it's a dumb little saying, but it's a pretty insightful one. And so you're getting the results you're getting because of the way you're designed. So if you want to get a different result, you're going to have to change that. So I would encourage people to, to sort of embrace these ideas about organization design. I think it's becoming more and more critical. Then I go down to the personal and and, and begin to understand that as, as digitalization proceeds, and it, it is proceeding apace, as globalization continues, as we see political changes happening all over the world, not just here in the United States, but all over the world. Um, there's gonna, there's gonna be, I think there are some clear uh, messages that the, that the leadership's uh, people are telling us about becoming much more comfortable in your own skin and understanding who you are and your strengths and weaknesses, being comfortable with ambiguity and, and learning to live with some paradox. Uh, and, and, and working on that. So I think that's something, that's something you have to learn. We're taught to make decisions as leaders. We're taught to, to move forward and get results. And yet, I think the leadership people are telling us, you're going to go faster and you're going to proceed with higher quality if you take time out to reflect and learn and think about what you're doing before you actually go do it blindly. So um, I guess I would sort of, you know, kind of hit the two ends of the scale there. I think in very broad terms and, and get fluent in the language and the principles of org design. And then I'd really spend some time uh, as a leader 
being clear about who you are, what your purpose is, and understanding your own strengths and weaknesses, and that you can surround yourself with people who are strong in areas where you're weak, and, and, and leveraging that diversity for really, really uh, sharp decisions and, and shrewd uh, decision making. I think that's incredible advice. I just read an article on the plane yesterday in Harvard Business Review about how CEOs spend their time, mm. and uh, they did a case study, and it was much, much more time being alone and reflective because top leaders are so overscheduled. And like one of my rules is I never get Wi-Fi on airplanes. I put my noise reduction headphones on, and I read and I reflect and I journal, and you know that that looking at ourselves. And so trying to carve out time in our crazy busy schedules to do that. Great advice, Chris. Um, so wonderful to carve time out in this busy, hectic environment that I'm sure our listeners can hear of 11,000 people. Uh, hope, the, hope the music overlay has been very nice. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but this is, uh, this is the way you catch someone who's as famous and sought after as Chris Worley. Uh, love your book, The Agility Factor, and I've really enjoyed getting to know you over the last couple of years. And uh, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Gretchen, it's always a pleasure spending time with you. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening to the Built Revolution pod brought to you by Continuum Advisory Group and the Construction Industry Institute. Continue the conversation on Twitter at Built Revolution Pod or email us at hello at builtrevolutionpod.com. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals being interviewed, and they do not necessarily reflect the views of the sponsoring organizations.